Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome, everybody, to another brand-new episode of It's My Wrestling Podcast. You know me. I'm, of course, as always, your host, Chris Dees. Please, before I get started, make sure you hit subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube and hit follow if you're listening on audio platforms. Really, really helps me out. Thank you very much. Today, I am joined by just an absolute top-tier guest, somebody who I am beyond words excited to speak to. Um, he is a part of Wrestling Royalty, his family over in Canada. Honest to God, an absolute Wrestling Royalty family. He has held loads of titles in the NWA, wrestled for WCW, in WW, yeah, sorry, in WWF. He's a three-time tag team champion and an intercontinental champion, and he's the man responsible for one of the most iconic wrestling characters in history the mountie of course he is the one and only mr jacques rogeau jacques thank you so so much for joining me man how's it going well it's going really good now after your introduction i feel like i want to go in the ring but uh <laughs> thank you so much chris for having me on your show no no like i say thank you the pleasure is all mine it really is how how are things going over in canada is everything getting back to normal a little bit more now yeah, I don't know about normal, but you know, there's, well. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, people that are not very very happy with the way the government right now is running things. Uh, with uh, and it's like that in different countries. We're really caught up in a in a mess now around the world. But I uh, I see light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully, if the, if there's not another variant that comes and surprises us, but we are starting tomorrow morning actually to uh, open up things. Like the restaurants are starting to open up halfway. Mm -hmm. And the gyms are starting to open up. And uh, so uh, so we're, we see light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, it's been a very, very hard time for everybody around the planet the last two years. But uh, I kept my morale very good because I kept working out there. I'm in great shape, you know. So when you go to the gym, it helps a lot. You know, I had my, home, my yeah. own gym. So, so I've been doing uh, a lot of time in the gym. So, so and the sun's coming. Uh, I don't know if you guys know uh, out in your area, uh, your part of the world, if you know Phil, the the uh, la marmotte there the the if he sees a shadow if we're gonna have a long spring or a short spring what's it called the fill uh, from uh, Pennsylvania you know it's like a like a rat yeah. that comes out in the spring and yeah. if he sees the shadow and then uh, so that's coming in on Wednesday and then uh, I also am very happy because uh, uh, the, the, the 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 what's it called la fête the the couple qui s'en vient uh, yeah. the Saint Valentin. We have a. I don't know if you have that for lovers on the 14th of February. Yes, I don't yeah, know yeah. around the world. That's yes. coming too. So that's a good sign of spring. So so we're all excited here now, and things are probably looking up. Mm, awesome. Good. It's good. Good to hear. I can't. When you said two years, I was like, wow, it really has been two years. Like it's been a long two years, but it's gone quite quickly. It's amazing, and but but you know, it's. Uh, I took that time also to to get into a big project. And, and so it gave me time and, and to put all this together. And, and I'll tell you about this project whenever you want to. But I have a, a huge wrestling project coming in Canada that's going to be a, a competition nationwide in Canada. 
and it's going to be seen around the world on YouTube. And, uh, and we're working to try to get some TV stations into this. This week, we actually have four TV stations that we're meeting, and hopefully they'll pick that up. But uh, what a great opportunity for Canadian wrestlers who want to have a chance to make it in the big leagues. And that's the yeah. opening I have for them. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm looking forward to talking about that. I've been doing a little bit of research into it. It looks very, very cool. I know you've got a lot that you want to share about that. Um, I wanted to start off, though. I wanted to obviously talk about, about wrestling, first and foremost, your career. Um, but I want to talk about your family, like I, I mentioned at the start there in the intro. Like For anybody who isn't aware, I don't know how they could not be aware, but you come from an incredible wrestling lineage, you know, four generations of the Rajot family dating all the way back to the 40s. Huge, huge part of the industry. It's massively influential, especially in the Canadian scene as well. So growing up, was it was it a case that you had no choice than to be a wrestler? Were you always <laughs> going to be a wrestler? It's funny that you say that because ever since I was four years old, are you going to be like your dad? Are you going to be like your dad, a wrestler? <laughs> and it seems like they brainwashed me. The fans brainwashed me, and that's what I became. But I've always wanted to be a wrestler all my life. And yes, mm. of course. Four generations of wrestling is something else. And uh, my great uncle, my great, great uncle, Eddie Oje, and, uh, and then my uncle, Johnny Rougeau, was brother with my father. So they were the Rougeau brothers, the original Rougeau brothers, Johnny and Jacques. And then he had three sons. My father was Raymond, myself, the fabulous Rougeau brothers, plus my Armand, my other brother, who, who, who wrestled locally in the province of Quebec. And my three sons did some wrestling after that. Yep. So, you know, I got some great news for you, Chris, by the way, for the collectors. You know, people that are collecting items and stuff. Mm -hmm. Greg Gagne from Minneapolis where his father was Vern Gagne. He owned the territory before the WWF and all that stuff. They just signed a toy deal, that, and they're going to have all the wrestling families, like the Funks oh. and the Hearts. And, and so they're going to have my great-great-uncle Eddie to my son, and it's going to be the fourth generation of dolls, which for me is it's the, the most important thing of my life because yeah. I, I, wrestling has been my life. And what an honor to, to – uh, I'm, I'm so uh, – I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, in debt towards Greg Gagne, who, who took that project, because he, he immortalized our family. Yeah. And, and that's the first guy who ever does that for the four generations. So what a great thing. You'll be able probably to get that on YouTube eventually, probably in June or July. But what a great honor for me as a dreamer, a wrestler, uh, and to have those dolls put out. Uh, you know, of course, when we talk about dolls, I can always tell you I had the Mountie <laughs> doll. And then I had the, I had a bunch of dolls made. I had Zashman in Australia made these dolls. They're fabulous. Rougeau brothers. You can even see my brother Raymond's mustache. The mustache, there. yeah. <laughs> but, but it was, uh, those are all fun. But when you talk about four generations, the whole family, my sons, my brothers, my uncles, great uncles, what a, what, what a great honor for us. Yeah, that's really cool. Like that's not like you said, that's nothing that's ever been done before. You could buy all of the individual dolls and say that you've got, you know, say that you've got the four generations. But is it is it going to be like one big pack full of all of the family? I think so. I, I haven't seen them yet. I just signed a contract. That's all I know. And right. I filled in the okay. bios. But I don't know how it's going to be done, to be honest. But I know for sure that it would be awesome if it was in one package. Yeah. You know, one big package. You go from my sons all the way to my great-great-uncle. That would be awesome to put over the, the man on the TV there or something like that in my living room. That would be awesome. Yeah, I will be checking them out. I'm a big collector. 
So I will 100% oh, yeah? be checking them out if they uh, okay, come. Okay. <laughs> Depends if they come over in the UK, but I can just import them. It's fine. I'll import them from the US. That'll be really cool. Um, so you, well, you... Now, since, since we're friends, you could call me and I'll send you a package. You know? Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. It's all, it's all about who you know, isn't it? All about who you know. Um, you, you said that since you were about, about the age of four, you wanted to be a wrestler. So like how long, this is something I'm, I'm always interested in with wrestlers' children. Like how long did it take for you to realise that wrestling was a work, that, that wrestling was oh, choreographed or, or that's whatever? Great. That's a great question, Chris. I'm really happy you asked me that question. No one's ever asked me that question. That's awesome. Oh, okay. Awesome. <laughs> I, was, I, I, was, uh, I was about 12 years old. And we were in one of the towns in, in, in Quebec. It was called Three Rivers. And my father was wrestling against uh, Tor Kamara. He was a big, big Japanese guy, Tor Kamara. And he set my father's leg up on the first bottom rope there. And he climbed sitting up like Yokozuna. He was a guy like Yokozuna. And he, go, he went up on the second rope to sit down like this. And he'd do an ass bump on the leg when it was on the turnbuckle. And he, he slipped and he broke my father's leg. And, and so we were in that town, let's say Monday night. I'll say a fictive day there let's say it's monday night and, and and on tuesday my father had a big big match where it was close to our home and he was the main event against the michel justice dubois it was his name in the states was alexis smirnoff you know but uh, i don't know if you oh, know yes him. yes yes yeah i know the name and, yeah and he was a french canadian but he moved to la and he did all kinds he had a great career mm. but his best wrestlers were, his best wrestling career was in montreal and so he was scheduled to wrestle on main event the next night so so my father had broken the leg. We went to the hospital in Three Rivers that night. And the doctor said, we're going to have to put it in a cast. And my father said, no, 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 no. He says, I got a match I got to do tomorrow. He says, Mr. Rougeau, you have to put a cast. Your tibia is broken. He says, yeah, but he says, listen, just tape it up. Tape it up really hard. So anyway, long story short, give me pills. And then he gave him pills. So we got to the show the next night. And here I am, a virgin. I don't know wrestling's a work. <laughs> I don't know, so I don't know nothing. My father's my hero. I'm 12 years old, and my father's always been my hero. So anyway, I get in the dressing room. So my father brings me over, and he says to me, he says, uh, he says, listen, Jacques, he says, uh, when you come to the ring tonight, you know, he says, I want you to accompany me. And he says, like you always do, and I give you my jacket. You know, when they introduce me, I give you my jacket in the corner. He says, Michel Dubois, he's going to come to you, and he's going to offer to give you a handshake. And I'm looking at my dad, like, how do you know that? Like, you know, and I'm going like, so anyway, he says that when he offers you the hand, he says, just let yourself soft. He says, just stay soft. And he said, he may do a little something to you. He may not. But he says, just play with it, you know. So I'm looking at my father, kind of a little disappointed, like, you know, like he's the Santa Claus is not real, you know, like, holy mackerel, he's just destroying my, my, my image that I had of him. And I'm going, but I love my father so much. I say, okay. So anyway, so I go by the ring, I go up by the ring and he, they introduce my father's going with a broken leg with, he's all wrapped up and he's going to the ring. So, so when he comes into the ring, he's trying to hide it. And he gets the ring, he takes his jacket off, and the people loved my father. He was a superhero here. So, so then they announced him, and then he took his robe off, and he gave it to me. And then there he came, Alexis Smirnoff. He's coming towards me, like my dad called it. Anyway, so he's coming towards me, and then he gives me that handshake. So I tend my hand like this, like I'm going to give him a handshake. I think my father maybe wants to have a clean match. Maybe maybe that's why he has a plan or something. I don't know. So, so I let my hand out like this, like I'm going to say, 
and he slaps the hell out of me. He slapped me in the neck, and my feet went flying. I was like 12 years old, I think, 13 years old. I can't remember. I was really young, and 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 my feet went flying. And then I, but it didn't hurt me. Uh, he did it well, I guess. What I know. So anyway, so when I took the bump, I rolled to the floor. My father turned around and he knocked him out with one punch. Boom! And the people went nuts. And the referee counted him to 10. He was knocked out. He couldn't get up anymore. My father did the match. The people went wild. He saved the show. My father was a tough guy. I know I'm not. that's not the subject right now, but I just want you to let you know, <laughs> for 24 hours, my father was walking without a, with a broken leg. And so he covered him. He managed wow. to get on one knee, and he covered him one, two, three. The people were so happy. And then he went and had a cast for three months. You know, <laughs> for the, but, but that was when I was first initiated as wrestling was a work. And then not long after that, my brother Raymond, he was wrestling Tarzan Boot Tyler. You know, I don't know if you know Tarzan Boot Tyler. He's a very, very well popular wrestler in Quebec. Of course, there was also many small leagues. You can't know them all. But he was, if you go look up for Tarzan the Boot Tyler on the internet, you'll find him. And he was a guy, that, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. He was a big heel and stuff. And so my, so then I was a little smarter now. So my, I did something with my brother Raymond, where it was like three months later, where um, Tarzan the Boot Tyler, he, I was told that he was going to come and grab me. So now I was getting smart of it to the business. So I said, sure, you know, so, but then he picked me up and he body slammed me, you know, in the middle of the ring. And it was so funny because he was so worried to hurt me that when he body slammed me, it looked like the shit. It was a horrible, <laughs> a horrible bump. <laughs> it was like almost like he put me to sleep and I was two months old and in the cradle, but he didn't want to hurt me. But, uh, but, but it was fun. So then I started getting with the business then. And then I really wanted to get into the business because I'm in real life. I'm not a fighter. I'm an entertainer. You know, some wrestlers are really tough and really street fighters and stuff. I'm not. I'm just a Hollywood entertainer. So, so then I start really liking wrestling because I was saying, but like from the age of eight to 12, I was always afraid of it. I was a little chicken. I said, do I want to get into wrestling? I'm going to get beat up and this and that. But when I found out it was a work, then I really fell in love with the business and holy shit, I'm a good comedian. So, so I'm going to have fun in this business and we're not hurting each other. So it's all good. Yeah, that's brilliant. I was literally going to ask, like, when you found out, did it put you off at all? But obviously, obviously it didn't. It made you fall in love with it even more because then you knew that you were, you well, you were acting then, weren't you? A bit more. You were entertaining a bit more. Exactly. And that made it the whole difference in the world. Uh, and, and, and up to till this day, you know, I started wrestling at 17 years old professionally and I, uh, and I finished three years ago. I wrestled like a 41 years of career and Lord knows my, I, I had such a great time. You know, it's funny because when you get older, you look back at all the good things in life. But I could tell you I had some rough and hard times when I started in the business, you know, or traveling from territory to territory, not making any money, surviving, four in the car to pay the gas to get the places, working out every day, away from home. You're not with your family. It's a horrible life. But, you know, but once you look back at all the accomplishments, what a great life it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everybody that I've spoken to from your sort of era is the, is the same. They say, like, at the time, they were like, oh, man, am I wasting my life? Like, I'm not spending time with my family and my kids and stuff. But then you've got so many, you made so many friends and been to so many places around the world that you might never have been to if it wasn't for wrestling. You know, you've experienced so much. Hey, I remember in 77, I started, my first territory was with Bret Hart's father, Stu Hart, at Stampede Wrestling mm -hmm. in Calgary. 
And, uh, and from then on in 78, I went to Mexico. And then, you know, Mexico, wow, you know, I landed in Guadalajara, you know, Mexico City, actually. And then there was no word of English or French. I was bilingual, but there was no word of either because I was in the industrial part of Mexico. I wasn't on the beach with the palm trees. I was in the industrial part where, where everybody spoke Spanish and I couldn't understand a word. I remember going to the first restaurants and going like, a, uh, uh, and then they said, the waiter said, comida, comida. Yeah, yes, comida, comida. Yeah. And, then something, and then something that was spicy because everything was spicy over there. I'd say something. Something like oh, so she said no bueno. I said no, no bueno, no me gusta, no me gusta, <laughs> and I learned the language like that, you know. But what a great experience of life to go in every culture, every country, different languages, and learning from scratch like a baby going to school. That that was really uh, it makes you grow, it makes you mature pretty fast in yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine it does. It sounds incredible. It sounds absolutely incredible. I, I wish I could have been somehow involved in the business. Um, you you said that you had a you had a forty one year career, forty one year wrestling career, and I think it's safe to say you know you've done a lot of amazing things, especially with your brother, all the different things that you've won in the NWA, WWF, all that kind of stuff. But like I said at the start, you were responsible for one of my favorite and one of the most iconic characters. Like you say, the Mountie to anybody, and they can picture the Mountie. You know, it's, it's one, you know what I mean? One of them characters where you don't have to think about it. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, the hat, the red clothes, you know, all of that kind of stuff, the boots. So so I have yeah, to ask yeah, yeah. about about the man. There you go. There you go. Exactly. You you see that image in your head straight away. Like It's it's an image like no other. It's so bold and so memorable. But but I have to ask about the character because, like I said, it is one of my favourites. Who, who came up with the idea for the Mountie? Is it something that you pitched? Is it something that somebody else pitched to you? Absolutely, Vince McMahon's idea, 100%, except for okay. the shock stick. The shock stick was my idea. Because when right. he had me come in, <clears throat> when he had me come in as the Mountie, I, well, the first thing I asked him, because when I was young, then again, at the age of eight, nine, ten years old, there was a guy, a manager in our dressing room that was called Eddie Creechman, Eddie the Brain Creechman, one of the greatest managers of all time. If he would have been in a different era, he would have been in the WWF as much as Bobby Enon or Jimmy Hart. He was a great manager. And he had an electric cattle prod. When I was young and he used to come in the dressing room and I used to, he used to scare the shit out of me with that <laughs> shock stick. Like really? So I lived it because he used to tease me with it a little bit. And I'd start running. I'd be afraid. <clears throat> so I said, I told Vince, I said, Hey, I got a gimmick that's never been seen. And I said, I'd like to bring it with me. So he says, go ahead, jog and bring it. And then that's where I brought in the, the shock stick, which was amazing. Uh, Ter terrifying for the boys, but amazing for me. <laughs> <laughs> I I read that I read that it was um it didn't go down quite as well in Canada though. You weren't you weren't allowed to, to wrestle <laughs> as the Mountie sometimes. Like what, what was that all about? How did you get around that? All right, I'll I'll tell you the story. It's amazing because uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Oh my God. You know, it's like they have an expression, get off of your horse there, you know, that we say, you know, when you're going, you're too snobbish in life or something, get off your horse. But anyway, long story short is, is the Mounties, it was funny at the beginning, but my character was growing so strong and I was such a, a good performer as a heel. You know, I'd really, I was really hated by everybody and I was mean. Yeah. And then finally, the real Royal Canadian Mounted Police send a, an injunction against the WWF, say, hey, we're not like that, the Mounties. You're giving a bad image of the Mounties around the world, so you may not use that character anymore. <laughs> but they killed my character. And it's amazing because the world was in love with my character. And from one day to the other, I had to be off TV in Canada. But the thing was, is Vince, when he was doing his TV tapings, the TV tapings were done in two days. 
like per month where all the shows were put together. So he couldn't, he couldn't put me on the show just because of one country who was, who didn't understand that there's difference between real life and entertainment. Like I'm so many times I watch movies and I see dirty cops, you know, and I see the it's movies, you know, and they don't take the movies off the, the scene or off the TV because it's, it's a movie. You have to make the difference. So when the Royal Canadian Mounted Police got me off the air, they killed this Mountie. So that's why uh, not long after that, I came back as the Quebecers. And, 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 and with Carl Willette, we dressed up the same thing. We cut the sleeves off. And then we had a song say, we're not the Mounties. <laughs> we're handsome. That was like a, that was like a little shove to the Mounties. Like, uh, you know, hey, wake up. You know, this is entertainment, you know. And uh, so, so that hurt me a lot. But, but, but that character was so, I remember, you know, I, I, I remember this thing that happened. It was amazing. My first, first match with Coco Beware. My first, first match. When I got, when I took my big shock stick out in the dressing room and I, I was going like, bzz, 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 and it was a real one. People thought it was a work, but it was a real one. What we did is my friend, I, he was a genius and mechanic. He took a lawnmower and he took the lawnmower coil inside and he reverses the wires in there, which make the big, big, big flame at the end there. And, uh, and if you ask me how much it stains, I don't know how much it, it, it hurts. I don't know. I never tried it on me. But I'll tell you what, <laughs> when I got in the ring, my stick here had two, two buttons on it. He had the on and off here. And underneath, he had the emergency button right here with my pinky. And, and I had two buttons. I wanted to make sure that when I put that emergency off that I didn't zap someone with this you know i was i was afraid of my own stick so anyway so when i got in the ring with coco beware i he, there we are 20 minutes in the match he's soaking wet now he's wet he's doing the job for me he's doing me the favor so he's lying down in the middle and there i come with my stick and don't ask me what happened i must have flicked, flicked that pinky off or something so anyway i start zapping him and he's soaking wet now and now he's starting to shake in the ring and, and my god he's doing a good job and i'm saying to myself wow coco that's a great thing you're doing for me and the next thing you know you know when you burn your skin when you burn yeah. your skin sometimes it smells like pig you know it yeah, smells yeah. funny when so i'm so i start to smell that thing so i'm saying to myself wow Vince is good, man. He even has the smell effect. You know, this is really good. So when I get backstage and there I'm waiting for Coco Beware to thank him so much because he made me look so good. And then he comes out, I'm going to kill you. And then all the boys in the dressing room like, I'm going, holy shit. And he really wanted to <laughs> kick my ass. My ass. And then, the, but, but we're the greatest friends, you know, and like I always tell on my podcast, you know, hey, you should have a podcast with Coco Beware and ask him the side of the story. It's just amazing. <laughs> but he's the nicest guy. But anyway, and then like a guy said to me one time, he says, yeah, he says, I think Gorilla Monsoon on the, on the outside was saying, is he going to cook his bird there? Is he going to cook his bird? <laughs> but, but, and another thing I want to tell you about this, this character and this stick especially, you know, the Bulldogs, they weren't always the greatest. Uh, the guys in the dressing, they were ribbers. You know, they played jokes yeah. all the time. And, 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 and one time they took my stick and that was in Europe. And I can't remember. I think it was in Manchester. And you, do you remember Virgil that was mm -hmm. the manager of the Million Dollar Man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Virgil's a great guy, a nice guy, you know. But he's like me. He's not a fighter. You know, he's just, we're in there for the fun. 
And the bulldog had took my, my, my chalk stick and he was running around with him in the, in the other. You know, it's funny when you think about it, but it's not funny when you're being run no. after, you know. <laughs> but anyway, that stick really made some, some noise in the WWF. It really did, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, that Coco Beware story might be my favorite wrestling story of all time now <laughs> i had no idea about that and i'm so happy that you shared that that is fantastic you were there like oh coco you're the best seller of all time this is amazing yeah, you even smell like that here that's awesome you know and i had no freaking wow. clue what was going on because i was so excited and so nervous for my first match you know and uh, as the mountie and uh, i think it was in front of eighteen thousand people <laughs> anyway oh that's my crazy God. That's crazy. I'm so happy with that story. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> uh, that's put me off. I can't remember what I was going to ask you now. Um, oh, I was just going to ask about, uh, well, obviously you played the Mountie for, for, you didn't play it for that long. I think it was only for a few years, wasn't it, the character? Until the, until the Mounties had, a, they took me off the air until they, they yeah. had the lawsuit because I was on fire. I was going against Bossman in the, in the jailhouse match at the time. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, and they gave they gave us three months notice to get off the air. So they did a little something with I did a little something with Brit for a month and Sergeant Slaughter for another month. And then they just took my character off the air. And then uh, but I was at the peak. And I don't know if you remember that jailhouse match I had with Big Boss Man where the loser had to go spend the night in jail at the Madison Square Garden in New York. That was a classic. That was a classic, too. Funnily enough, that is honestly literally what I was just about to ask you about because I was going to say one of, one of the, the storylines that I remember the most was the jailhouse match and then you spending the night in the cell and, you know, you had the um, the, the two guys in the cell with you, the guy who was a little bit um, effeminate um, and, and, and liked he liked you a little bit, let's say. that was That's probably my, my favourite storyline or favourite match or programme that you had, but... What, what was yours? What was your favorite thing that you did as the Mountie? Which, like, no, definitely, definitely. You know, the, the favorite thing I did as the Mountie, to be honest with you, I'd have to say your story just you just said there, but there's something that was even funnier for me that was the greatest moment of all time as the Mountie. It was like when at the time when the, the, the wrestlers would come in the territory about three, four weeks ahead of time before they made their debut, they had some little vignettes that would put on TV just to introduce the character. And so when they did the character, so Vince had called me up. I'd been off for a year. And then he called me up and he said, Jacques, he says, we're going to prepare. I want to I, I bring you in as a Mountie. And I was going like, as a Mountie? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says, we're going to do a few vignettes in, 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 up in Canada. We're going to send the crew up there. And so, so the, the, the vignette was amazing. The vignette, one of the vignettes, the best one I've ever had. I always say in my stand-up shows too, because I do stand-up shows now and everything. And I always bring that one. It's so funny. I'm on my horse and I'm sitting, I'm in the park and I'm there with my horse with my serious face on. And so this car pulls up beside me and it's two Americans, but they're not really Americans. They're Canadians, but they're playing the role as two Americans that are lost in Canada. They want to go back home. So they pull up beside me. So this guy comes up and he says to me, he says, excuse me, officer, excuse me, officer. And I'm on my horse up here and I look down at him and I go, I'm not an officer on the mountain. So he looks, so he looks at me like scared. And then he looks at his wife in the car and he says, Holy Christ, I think I just hit a nut here. So then he looks back up at me and he says, Excuse me, Mr. Mountie. He said, Can you tell me how we get back to the USA? We're lost. And I'm on my horse like this, and I get off my horse slowly. I get beside the car and I look at him and I said, Come here. So he looks at his girlfriend. He's not sure if he wants to get out of the car. And he looks at his girlfriend. His girlfriend says, 
come on, chicken, get out of the car. So then he gets out of the car and I say, come here. So then I bring him in the front of my horse and I take the horse like this under his chin. And I look at him and I said, you see that part of my horse? It always points to Canada. Come here. And then I bring him at the rear of my horse and then I lift the tail up completely. You could see really the rear end of the horses in the camera. And then I look at the guy and I say, you see that part of my horse? It always points to the USA. And the guy goes like this and he just jumps in his car and he starts spinning his wheels and he gets out of there. They showed that for three, four weeks. And I can tell you, the Americans don't have a sense of humor. When I went to, when I went to wrestle, I was being thrown rocks on my head when I arrived at the parking lot early in the day. Like, you know, people were waiting. The groupies up there were waiting. And they were just bombarding me with rocks and stuff. But that was the most, I, I, you know, it was amazing because Jesse the Body Ventura was doing the commentaries and Mean Gene Okerlund. And it was always fun to hear uh, Jesse the Body saying, well, you know, Mean Gene, let's go to Canada and see how that Mountie's doing. You know, those, those vignettes. And boy, that was that was great era. It was a great era, a great time of wrestling in the 80s and the early 90s. Yeah, I a couple of months ago I had um, Larry Zabisco on, and he was telling me, you know, back in back in that era, wrestlers were were literally being targeted. Their cars were being turned over. They were being stabbed. <laughs> they were being shot at because obviously in this day and age, social media social media can be a good thing, but obviously it's ruined the illusion of, of yeah, the, the the business a little bit. We we see these wrestlers' real lives a bit too much, don't we? There's no there's no such thing as kayfabe anymore. We know. Even even if you're a young kid, your kids have access. They have access to phones and tablets, so they can see all of this stuff, can't they? It's it's you know it's not believable it's a, anymore. It's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's yeah. a, it's a good thing. It's a good thing because now the kids can watch, but yeah. it's a bad thing because now the grown ups can't believe in it anymore. <laughs> it, yeah, it was a, it was yeah. a good time when the people were really getting mad at the at the bad guys. You know, they wanted yeah. to hit them. I remember the old ladies wanted to hit them with their their purse. You know, they'd come out, they, they, they just wanted to kill the wrestlers. But it was a good time because you knew you were doing a good job and you were convincing them that it was true. But then again, you know, it was, it was an era that was different. You know, I'm going to tell you something. You're bringing me to something I think you, you, you may not know. And I'd like to, I, I, like to, I like to tell things to people that just in our era, different times. But did you know, Chris, that when before the WWF, any time from when I started from 77 to 85, Everything before 85, all the small territories I did all my career, when you'd get in the ring, you know, sometimes you'd have a lot of fat heels, you know, like fat guys. They, they look like they're beer drinkers and, you know, they're, they're stupid and, you know, they're, they're just big lumberjacks or whatever, you know. Yeah. And, and, and the truth was, from the day I went into the wrestling ring in 77, one, the minute you locked up, you took that first wrestling hold when you lock up at the beginning of the match, the heel would take control of the match. And it was the heel that would call every spot, every movement in the ring. When it's time for you to shine, when it's time for him to shine, the heel was the brilliant guy in the ring. While they were all looked at like idiots, they were the ones who were the smartest guys. And I remember I was like a couple of years in the business. I was getting pretty good because I was wrestling since I was four years old and in the pool and everywhere. But when I got seven, like 17 years old, I started by the 20. I thought I really was a good worker then I thought. And I went to my father, you know, a little arrogant. And I said, you know, dad, I think I'm one of the best wrestlers now in Quebec. And my father looked at me and he says, let me tell you something, son. 
He says, it takes five years to become a good wrestler. And that was working like seven days a week, six days a week. It takes about five years to become a good wrestler. But until you worked as a heel, you're never going to be a good worker. You have to be a, a, a bad guy and a good guy to become a good wrestler. Hmm. Right. Okay. Interesting. What 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 do you what did you enjoy doing more? What did you think was was easiest or more enjoyable to do? Be a face or be a heel? Well, when they asked me to start laughing at the United States and having fun about it, you know, being a heel is a great thing. You know, yeah. being a heel. You know, the and I wasn't the type of heel that was the heel that got cheap heat. Like you know, I wasn't yeah, yeah, the guy yeah. who went the simple things. I didn't look at a fat person by the ring and say, "Oh, you're fat." Oh, you're... That wasn't my. That was called cheap heat. The heat that I like to get was the, the doing everything behind the referee's back. Like, so he wouldn't see it when I cheated. You know, when my brother Raymond and I, we cheated the fabulous Rougeau brothers with Jimmy, they could never see it. The referee would try to catch us. We dare him to try to catch us cheat. And that was the, 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 the real good heat. It was the storylines. Uh, there was something else I wanted to say about that heat also. Um, it'll come back to me. Go ahead. But, 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 uh, but it, it, was, it was good heat that we had. Um, anyway, go ahead. It'll come back to me. No, I was just going to say, like, yeah, everyone, everybody that I've ever spoken to who has been a face and a heel, they always say they preferred being a heel because it's just, you just have more fun with it and it's a bit more, um, it just comes to you a bit more naturally because you're basically just being yourself. You're just being a bit of a dick to people where it's it's harder to be liked. It's harder to be a baby face. It's harder to get everybody behind you because there are going to be people who don't like you. You can, anybody can be baby face, but to be a good heel, it takes some, something special. And what I liked also when, when I was a heel, like especially when we turned heel for the first time, Raymond and I, in, in 80, 87, I believe. Yeah, in 87, we turned heel. It was like we had the job to laugh about the Americans, but the Americans in the real life, they were, a lot of them, a lot of them were not nice to us, the French Canadians and the Canadians in the dressing room. They were prejudiced. You know, sometimes Raymond and I or Pat Patterson were speaking French or Ricky Martel. And some of the guys would go complain like, hey, stop speaking French or, because they thought that we were speaking against them or something. And every time they come to wrestle in Canada, every time they come to wrestle in Canada, they would lose money on their money because their dollar was worth a lot more than our Canadian money. So if, for example, they made example of $2,000 one night. Well, when they got home, they had about uh, $1,200 left because their money wasn't worse. So they'd hate to come and wrestle in Canada. They really had this hatred towards the foreigners. So they made us feel like that during our career when we were good guys in the dressing room. So when we had the job to laugh at them, boy, did I have a revenge there and I have a blast. And then what I would do, it, I wouldn't, like I was saying, I wouldn't get that cheap heat. I wouldn't do the easy stuff. What we do was something like example. Uh, it was Independence Day on the 4th of July. And then we come in on a promo with our little American flag and we say, uh, uh, um, hey, we're Jacques and Raymond. We're the fabulous Rougeau brothers. And we want to wish you a happy Memorial Day today. But it wasn't the right birthday. <laughs> you know, and people would be so pissed off. They say, you stupid idiot. Don't try to say you're Americans. You're Canadians because we had supposedly moved to Memphis. <laughs> Jimmy Hart. And so those were the good heat where you really get to the core. And you. so it wasn't the easy heat. Oh, you're ugly. Oh, you got. No, no, no. It was it was thought heat. And that's what I think brought our characters with a lot of credibility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you want to piss off Americans, just talk about America. 
Simple. <laughs> Simple. Always gets them going. Always gets them going. Um, and, they always had, and if you really want to touch up good, you always tell them, you know, you're a funny country here. You know, we get sick, we go to hospital. It doesn't cost anything. How come you oh, pay yeah. here when you go? And, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, we have the insurance, the free insurance. And you know, that would really get into them. Like, you're not better than, you know, they, but we were better than them in one way, you know. So that would really get them where they had no answer. It was like as the real heels, the real haters would say, excuse my language, but not you. But the smart people would say, that's right. You, you're right there. We should have that too, you know. Like, so it was it was great heat, you know. Yeah. Yeah, rather than just being insulting and you were you were like, um, you were coming across as better than them. So I think it's, it's smarmy, isn't it? It's it's or that we thought we were better. <laughs> well, yeah, that you thought you were better. It's the same here. We've got the free healthcare as well, so that's something that um, that British wrestlers <laughs> always use to piss off Americans oh, yeah? as well. Always brilliant, brilliant. Um, I want I want to just come back to something that you said before. You mentioned that you had the the short little program with with Bret Hart as well. Obviously, you were Intercontinental Champion, a huge, huge moment, probably, arguably, the defining moment of, of your career it's a huge huge honor uh, my favorite championship all of my favorite wrestlers have been intercontinental champion oh, yeah. but but you only held it for two days obviously a super super short reign i think you know i'm not trying yeah. to sound horrible but one of the no, shortest no no no, no, no. Uh, no, no. those are facts those are facts yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna explain that to you uh, because maybe you don't know why it happened for yes that's what i was gonna ask yeah why, why was it such a short reign like how did that go down you know, I you know I worked four years with Bret the Hitman Hart. You know, I worked two years as a, as a baby face as with Raymond, and then they were heels. They had Jimmy Hart for two years, and then finally we switched heels, moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and they turned baby face the Hart Foundation. So we worked another two years with them around the world. We worked in in the Kingdom, United Kingdom, and Europe all with the Hearts for like four years. Where was I going with that? Oh yeah, so Bret Hart, I must tell you, I love the guy. And I had a run with him with, you know, it wasn't for the Intercontinental, but my last month run there as the Mountie before they canceled my career there as the Mountie. But I got to tell you something. Brad is the greatest, nicest guy, you know, to be around, but he's a hard businessman. He does not like to, to do favors to just anybody. He, he had this different philosophy of becoming a superstar, which he managed to do very well. He had a different philosophy where if you lose, it's not good for your character or this. But we're all working together, so it was hard to do business. So I know for a fact that when Brett had to drop the title to Piper on the pay-per-view coming, he didn't want to do it. So what Vince did, so he took me as a guinea pig to put like in between us just to do the switch to yeah. get it from me to him. And, and, and even Brett, when he lost to me for those two little days I had it, he came in with 104 fever in the ring that night when he defended the title with me two days and he announced it. He had the announcer announce that oh, I'm sick, I'm dying, you know, but I'm going to wrestle anyway. So I beat a dead guy. Finally, I didn't beat anybody. I just beat a guy that was sick and dead. So it was, Brett was hard like that in life, you know, and, uh, and that's why they had this crew job with Brett also with Shawn Michaels in Montreal because yeah. Brett didn't want to give the title back to Vince when he was going for another company, <laughs> you know, so that's, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so Brett was a hard guy to deal with and, and therefore that's why 
Uh, the, the title was switched to me, but I got to tell you a quick story on that. It's so funny because I was so amazed when they brought me in the dressing room and they told me I was going to become the intergovernmental champion. Holy shit. Like, you know, that was a dream come true. But he said, don't get too excited, Josh. I said, why? He says, you're going to lose it in two days. I said, okay. But I, but, but I took advantage of that because what I did is I called home in Montreal and I called a guy called Andre Rousseau. He was a guy in a newspaper, the biggest newspaper in Montreal. And I called him up. I said, Andre, He's a friend of mine, so I'm going to say, Andre, something amazing happened tonight. I became an intercontinental like, champion around the world. You know, it's the biggest deal I've ever had. Can you put a picture in the paper of the Montreal? Because I always took care of my fans at home and, and that. And, uh, so he says to me, Jacques, it's 11 o'clock at night. You know, I just won the night. He says, 11 o'clock at night. He says, can you call me on Thursday? Uh, we were, let's say, on Monday. He says, can you call me on Thursday? And I said, uh, no, no. No, I can't. I can't. No. I you gotta put the picture in now because Thursday I won't be champion anymore. And we laughed about that. So I got the big picture in the paper, and then two days later I lost it on pay per view. But that was kind of fun to work with Piper, also. You know, mm. just to give the belt to him. It was he's such an icon. You know, so yeah. So I I had some great positions in WWF, some great angles and stuff. It was fun. Were you were you at all annoyed, angry, frustrated that you were only given it for two days? Would you have liked no, more of a run? No, no, I was very proud. I was very happy that because I had a chance to take a picture with the belt, and you have no idea how many pictures when I go sign in Comic Cons and stuff like that, they all have the belt. The Maori oh, well. has the belt. So it's like, wow, <laughs> still 30 <laughs> years later, everybody's showing me my picture with the belt. So, hey, it lasted more than two days, finally. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. You, 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 mentioned, um, you mentioned in there how like, the, the character was over not long after that, like within, within months, the, the Mountie character was gone. But then you, it's safe to say you had a pretty, uh, a pretty impressive comeback coming back as the Quebecers, coming back as um, a tag team that went on to be tag champions three times. You know, one of the, whenever whenever the discussion comes up about uh, who are the greatest tag teams of all time, the Quebecers is always one of those names that comes up and people say, ah, people don't talk about the Quebecers nearly as, as much as they should do. Like, how, how did the pairing come about for the Quebecers? Because I don't know, you know, as some people might not be aware. Wow, well, you, well, you know, that's a good story. I'm fixing to tell you a good story now. Yeah, you Pierre. Um, I don't know if I'm saying the surname correctly. Carl it was, it was Carl. His real name was Carl. Yeah, Carl Willen. And, and, and what were you going to say? Go ahead. What were you going to say about Pierre? Um, I was just going to say I don't know if many people are aware, but he is he is PCO PCO in yeah. um, Ring exactly. of Honor. Still now, wrestling. I think he's still going as Frankenstein now. He's yeah. still going at the Impact Wrestling, I think, or something. He's he's, yeah. he's incredible. <laughs> I got to tell you a story. So here we are. I just come out of the uh, the Mountie gimmick, and. Uh, and, and I'm so, you know, so I have a year off. I'm taking a year off. My, my, my wife has my first child. So I spend time and helping her and all that and giving the bottle and all that good stuff and changing the diapers for about a year. And then finally, in the meantime, I'm, uh, I'm, I get a call from uh, Carlos Colon, who promotes yep. Puerto Rico. Yep. And uh, so, so he does an independent uh, federation there. So I, he asked me to go do a shot, a main event against Abdullah the Butcher. So I say, so I say, sure, I'll do that. So, so I go wrestle Abdullah in the main event. So on, during the day, I'm on the beach in Puerto Rico. And this guy comes and he taps on my shoulder. And I turn around and he says, uh, hey, salut, Jacques. Moi, je m'appelle Carl. Like, uh, so, so, so I say, so, yeah, you speak French. Yeah, it's bad Francais. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, so we talk a little bit. And he says, so he says to me, he says, I'm on the first match tonight. He says, 
I, I don't want to bother you, but he says, can, 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 would you mind just checking my match out? And I'm looking at him and I'm saying, hey, a French Canadian like me, you know, he comes from my home. Sure, I'll do that, Carl, for sure. So I watched his match and I was amazed. He was like Gumby. You know, the green little toy you had when you were young there, you could bend and torch. Oh, yeah, yeah, Gumby. It was called Gumby. Anyway, and he was like that. He would take bumps, crazy bumps on the floor on the cement. He'd get right back up like it didn't hurt him and nothing. And I looked at his match and I said, wow. So then when he came after the match, you know, after the evening was done, he, after my match, he came to see me. He said, Jacques, did you have a chance to see my match? He actually let me have my match first, you know, with Abdul. I did my business. And then he waited till the end. And then he came to see me and asked me, did you see my match? I said, yeah, man, I saw your match. I was very, very impressed. I said, you know what, Carl? I said, let me get home. And I said, in four days, call me at home. He says, because during the day when I was on the beach, he told me, he says, Jacques, he says, for 10 years, I've been trying to send tapes and cassettes to the WWF. But he says, nobody's responding. Nobody's answering back. And as we were saying before, it's not sometimes what you could do, but is it who you know? You know, so so he had no contact and he was a great performer. So then I, uh, so anyway, well, long story short, I said, call me in four days. So when I got home, I get the call and he calls me up. And I say, hey, in the meantime, while the four days had passed, I called Vince up. And I told Vince, I said, Vince, I got this guy. I think I'd like to be tag team with him. I think we could do really good for you. We could do some good business for you. He's good. And Vince had such confidence in me. So he just turned around and said, Jock, you call me and you let me know when you're ready. That was his words. So for four months, we set up a ring in the backyard at my home up in the hills. And he would, he would travel like two hours a day to come up and just practice. And we practiced those moves, the big tower that we do off the top rope there, you know, when he jumped on the top. And we'd put dummies in the ring like because we didn't want to hurt people because you have to land exactly the top of the shoulders on the guy. Or if you land his bottom part, you'd kill him. He was 300 pounds, Carl. You know, so so we practice and practice all those moves, the leg sweeps and all the funny moves that we did that we needed each other. It was a different kind of wrestling that we were doing. And when I called Vince, it was in the fall. I said, Vince, I said, whenever you're ready, you know, we're ready. He says, okay. He says, how about next week? He says, I said, next week. So I told Carl, you know, and he couldn't believe it, you know. And then and so we went to the Manhattan Center in, in, in New York. And, and our first, first match, they introduced us, Johnny Polo, as our, our manager. And we were wrestling the Steiners, Rick and Scott Steiners, who were the tag team champions at the time. And we stole the belts the first night that we came in. The first night. So imagine Carl on the beach tapping on my shoulder. And about four months later, he's world tag team champion in the WWF. <laughs> Amazing. Awesome. So, so, so Vince, Vince, obviously, you, you guys must have had a good relationship then, with Vince McMahon, if he had that much faith then, in you. Then it was awesome. Well, you know, he he trusted us because you know I'd already been working for him maybe for five years as the Fabulous Rougeau Brothers and stuff, yeah. and and he knew we were businessmen. We yeah. never went out in nightclubs. We didn't drink. We didn't take pills. We didn't take steroids. We're in the gym. We're on the flight every day. We were on time in the dressing room every night, and that means a lot, especially that we were good workers. So, you know, when you have a boss that has guys talent like that, that are reliable, it's like, holy shit. So he he knew, and then he knew our family, you know, four generations of wrestling. He knew that uh, we were real wrestlers, real wrestlers. So he had confidence in me. His confidence was at 100% at those days. Are you, are you still in touch with Carl, with, with PCO now? A little bit here and there. We don't... Yeah. Uh, 
we don't really associate that the business is funny. You know, the business kind of tear, tear apart people. And sometimes, you know, people get a uh, different side of the stories of things that happen between the bosses and the employees. But of course, if you yeah. take for the employee, you're never going to be on the good side of the boss. So, yeah. so, you know, it puts you in awkward positions, uh, conflict of interest. So, you yeah, know, yeah. so we kind of left each other go a little bit, but when we cross each other, I see him, Hey, how you doing, Carl? And I, and I, and I always have good words for him. So how can he not like me? You know, in the deep bottom, he may, he may not like me, not like me for some things that happened with, with Vince after that, where he, he had the other side of the story, but, but, but that's all irrelevant because if you look at the history of it, Carl Willett would not be in wrestling today, probably, if he never met me in Puerto Rico. Or maybe yeah. he would have, because he was such a good talent. But at least I'm the one responsible for him having his career like he did at that time. So yeah, I think yeah. Carl has a lot of respect for me, I'm sure. If you talk to him one day, I'm sure he has a lot of respect for me. Yeah, like I'm sure he would have made it eventually, but you you obviously got his, his foot in the door a lot quicker. Than, well, than let's just probably... say the, fir the first night become a world tag team champion. I think that's good. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's a good first day on the job, isn't it? That's not bad at all. Um, what, what, just just to, to pick your brains a little bit, what, what did you make? Obviously, he's been most well known over the last however many years as PCO in Ring of Honor. What did you make of, of Ring of Honor and their news recently of the closing down? Wow. You know what? I got to tell you something that's going to blow your mind, my friend, Chris. I'm going to tell you something, really. When Vince and I had my falling out, in 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 uh, ninety five, uh, I think it was ninety five. I think, and uh, I, I I I I turned the TV off. I have never watched a wrestling show in thirty years. Wow! I had my own promotion. I created my twenty year promotion in Quebec, which I've been. I did a great, successful, family orientated show. Mm. where there was no kicks, no punch, no girls, no offense, ladies. It was just I didn't want no sexual content because I was for kids. I had no beer in the arena. I was selling out my arenas, three, four, five thousand 5,000 people, not allowed to sell one beer because I wanted the kids to have fun and not the parents to be drunk. And, uh, and, and the thing was also, it was like I had a different kind of show. If ever you go and, and you check that out, their Spectac Familia, Jacques Rougeau, you'll see some clippings where you have – Spider-Man against the mummy. You have Darth Vader interfering against the, uh, what was uh, what was the other one? Darth Vader and who was the other one? The big, Chewbacca. You know Chewbacca? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, yeah. So I had them, I had them had confrontations. I had, I had uh, midget. I had, it was, a, it was like a Walt Disney kind of show. Like I said, there was no kicks and no punches, but go see my show. You wouldn't believe how with storylines and, and comedy, how you could put a really great family show together. And I succeeded for 20 years and I actually did very well for myself. And I didn't want to watch the wrestling on TV to get their ideas. I wanted to be original. I wanted to, everything coming from my brain and my friends and my, my talent that were putting all our heads together to create these storylines. And then, so that's why. And so now people ask me sometimes, you know, what do you think of John Cena? Uh, I heard his name, but I don't know what he, how he works. Or, or Stone Cold. Well, I know he does this, but I've never seen him work. Uh, I've seen you know, all the talent. The, the, who else are the other talents that I heard of that really made it big? I don't know them. I have no idea who they are. So, wow. so, so, if, so if you ask me today, like, you know, those Roman Reigns and those, I never seen them in the ring, you know, and all those. So I stopped when my character and Vince stopped our, 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 our friendship stopped. It was painful inside because it wasn't, it wasn't done correctly. 
yeah. you know, from yeah. them. And, and I had a grudge and I held that grudge on my life so bad. And I'm such a funny person in life, Chris. You don't know me. But if to, just to put you in context, you have the very, very normal people here and you have the autistic people, let's say, here. Mm. Let's Well, let's say I'm about here, like almost normal. <laughs> but, but anyway, I have hard time in life of comprehension of the reality of things sometimes. And I was like that since I was young. I've discovered that as I grew older, that I was uh, I had a missing link in me. But, but, but it's okay, because I managed all those to get through life anyway. So everything that was, everything that's emotional, as much as love or hate, I always see it bigger than it is. You know, it always seems to appear bigger. So, so that's why I, when, I, when I turned the page on Vince, I really turned the page. And when he hurt me a little bit, it hurt me a lot. More than he thought. So I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I definitely do. That's that's crazy, though. That's honestly, honestly, of everything that you've said so far in this interview, I think that's the, the one that's blown my mind the most, like that you've just not paid any attention, like not in a bad way, like it's entirely up to you if you don't want to follow wrestling. But that's crazy, like 30 years and, and not watch wrestling. That's mad. The only guy, the only guy I knew was Kevin Owen. Because he was yeah. my student for five years. I'm the one who taught him yeah. how to wrestle. He was at my wrestling school for five years. So I knew of him. I knew he was a great worker. I knew when I was teaching him in my school, he was always ahead of the other kids. And he always wanted to go fast. And I was saying, hey, we're a group here. You know, you're not alone here. The other guys pay too. So just take your time. And then after five years, he couldn't take it anymore. He just took off and did the independent things. And, and, and uh, so it went well for him. So, so, so uh, he's the only guy I really knew, actually, to be honest. You know, and, I'm glad. That, I'm glad that you mentioned his name because I was going to ask. I, I read because I wanted to see like who you trained, who you'd um, guided, and and the main name that came up was Kevin Owens. Now, anybody who listens to this show, he was my pick for the Royal Rumble last night. He is far and away my favorite wrestler, like my favorite current modern day wrestler. I think he can do literally everything he can be a face he can be a heel intense funny serious you know I, when when he came to my school you know i told him he was 14 years old when he came to my school and then he wanted to start running on the ropes and i said whoa 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 when you're you know in life they say before you run you gotta get a walk yeah yeah but not at my school at my school i wasn't born walking i was born crawling <laughs> so i said when you come to my school you're gonna learn how to protect your opponents you're going to learn how to transfer your weight. You're going to learn this and that. And then when you start walking, you're going to walk and I'll show you how to walk. And then when you walk correctly, I'll show you how to run. And then that's how it was at my school. That's why all the talent that I was surrounded at all my shows, they were so happy to work with me because I was always going to the basic and the fundamental of wrestling. You can, you can have the most beautiful house in the world on the lake there, but if you don't have a good foundation, your house is going to crumble eventually. You know, yeah. so I always took the guys and I always said, let's start with the bottom. And let me teach you the, especially the first thing was how to take care of your opponent. So him not to hurt. In other words, you pick up a guy for a body slam and you're off balance. Well, you make sure that he falls straight and you fall crooked because you're the yeah. one who put him up there. He gave you his body. He trusted you with his body. So you make sure you put him down correctly. Even if it means if you fall on your elbow and you break your elbow, it doesn't matter because he gave you his body, you take care of his body. And that's how I taught at my school. And that's how it's supposed to be done in wrestling. So was, was it, is it safe to say that he was a little bit maybe arrogant when he first came in then? Yeah, he was yeah. arrogant, but so was I. 
You know, so, okay. so, you know when, I, when I was young too, I was a little arrogant. I thought, you know, I saw him in me, you know, so, so, yeah. so, so, so it's something that I didn't bother that because he was a likable guy. You know, Kevin Owen was a really, you, you talk to him, you know, and, and you'd, you'd put him back in his place and then he'd come and give you a hug, you know, like he wanted to stay, yeah. he'd, he'd understand that he went out of bounds a little bit. Then I'd bring him back in line and, and then we had a great relationship till the day he left. You know, we had a great relationship. I, I always liked the guy. He, he knew how to be liked by people. When he gets around the people, yeah. the right people, he knows how to be liked. And that was a good quality. And that's probably why he went so far in the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even when he hasn't got a title around his waist, he's still one of the top guys, isn't he? One of the top guys in the business. I, yeah, I love him. I absolutely love him. Um, and it was, it was great to read and find out that you trained him because that made me like you even more. Well, thank Knowing you so that much. You trained my my literal my, my favorite wrestler. That was um, a really cool little thing to find out. Um, That's very kind of you to say so. I I wanted to ask something. I don't know if it's a little bit of like a, a delicate subject. I've I've never There's had no the delicate subjects with me. Okay, brilliant. That's good news. Um, <laughs> I've never had a chance to speak to anybody about this because um, nobody that I've spoken to was really in WWF around this time. Um, I've always, always, always wanted to know about. Um, Vince McMahon, 1994, the drug trial. Now, I'm not obviously too bothered about what happened in the trial and all that kind of stuff, but I've always been really interested, like, what what were things like backstage? Because obviously there was, you know, I think, I think fans had an idea that there was some sort of culture, drug culture going around. Same in WCW, I think there was always rumours and, and always suspicions. Chris, let me, cut the, let me cut the small talk. Let's go down to business. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, it was a walking drugstore, you know, right, in the, okay. the dressing room. And then, you know, and, and the worst one, I hate to tell you that because I had a feud with him, but it was the truth. It was uh, the Bulldogs because they'd walk in the dressing room and they have needles stick in their butt and they were walking around like, oh, we're going to have a good fucking time tonight. And they were like time bombs, you know, like walking around. And then you'd go in the bathroom and they were all, you could see them. Everybody, you know, like uh, I could count on my hand, maybe two if I'm lucky. The guys that weren't on steroids. Oh, wow. Everybody, everybody was on steroids. Everybody. But like I think of Tito Santana, who wasn't. Ricky Martel, who wasn't. Mike Sharp, that wasn't. Uh, Lombardi. Uh, me and Raymond. Now I'm getting, I'm running out of. Lanny Poffo never was on steroids. But, uh, you know, I'm trying to think now. Who else wasn't on steroids? There's not many that wasn't on steroids. They were all wow. on the juice. Because Vince, Vince, he knew that the kids, they liked the, the superheroes, the big guys, you know, the guys that are all bubbled up there. You know, kids would look at that, and he made a lot of money with that. And I remember during the time of the trial, it was so funny because there was a few rumors in the backstage, of course, that were going to trial. I didn't give a shit because we weren't on steroids, you know, <laughs> for us. But, you know, we didn't care. And we were actually proud at that time because most of the guys, a lot of the guys, which I had heat with that didn't like me, because they would come and ask me to pee-pee in a little test, in a pot for them, you know, when we had a pee-pee oh, wow. test. And they'd ask me to do it. I'd say, no, I'm not getting implicated in your shit. You know, it's your shit. You get out of it, you know. And, 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 and that's how it was. And I, and I remember they were passing bottles. It was a really joke. And, and then you could see guys. And then you still had some guys that after the tests were going on, supposedly random, the, you had a certain time, like three weeks to be clean so it didn't show off. Well, well then, and then you'd see some guys that were as big as they were, and then, so I, I believe there was conspiracy in there. And I also think that, uh, I also think that uh, when the trial happened, there was a little buzz going on in the dressing room. Like uh, we were someone, I'm not going to say who, but someone came to me one time and said, Jacques, 
you don't ever say nothing about steroids. You say nothing about steroids. So I don't say no. I, it wasn't in my interest to, 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 to kill my business either. But, but, yeah. you know, but anybody who had two eyes and looked at TV, if they can't figure out that the guys are on steroids, it's because they're not too smart. Because when you have a guy that's 300 pounds and has about a, a 5% fat, you know, and then you can yeah. see the veins coming out of the arms and the only thing is left is muscles and veins. You know, you got to understand, I've been working out all my life. I can't count the hours I spend in the gym. And you want to see a good muscle? This is a good muscle because this <laughs> muscle is 61 years old, you know, but it's never got 20 inches. But it always stuck between 17 and 19. Two inch difference in 41 years of career because sometimes I worked harder. I got heavier. When you train heavier, you get mass muscle that, that grows. But I was always there. So, so it's something I know about. And when I tell someone come up to me and tell me like, I'm not on steroids. And I'd say, well, I'm not a man. <laughs> you know, like hell. You know, <laughs> yeah, why, why, are you, why do you feel the need to tell me you're not on steroids? That tells me that you are on steroids. <laughs> really? You know what I mean? Well, anyway, so it was, it was a, but you know what? That's how we got rich. That's how the, a lot of yeah. the teams, not the Ultimate Warrior, the Bulldogs, the, all the big guys that were coming out like that, they made money. They made tons of money. And Vince yeah. liked that. Vince was into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I, I had no idea. Like, I, I had this image in my head thinking, like, oh, were, were people literally just like going around with bags of needles and hang, hanging them around? And I thought, no, no, surely it couldn't have been that bad. But it sounds like it really was like needle for you, needle for you, needle for you. Well, you know, it wasn't so obvious. Like, they didn't come in and, but, but, but <laughs> they, they had, you could tell they're all going to the bathroom in one night at the same time. You know, or yeah, yeah. when yeah. they had certain towns. They had certain towns where you could see there was action there, you know, like, uh, yeah. holy shit, the, the guys seem happy tonight, you know, but, uh, but the, the worst ones were the Bulldogs with the, I don't know, that was, that was traumatizing for me to see them with needles up their butt. Cause I yeah. was, like I said, I wasn't a real fighter either and stuff like that. So, so when I saw those guys and I was saying, Fuck you, they're really nuts. They're really, they're, they're really idiots. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're all on steroids. I remember one time going in the dressing room with Macho Man on a Monday night. I came in the dressing room and I said, how you doing, Randy? Oh, good brother, good brother. How are you? And on Tuesday night, I came in the dressing room. I hadn't seen him since. I said, hey, Randy, how are you doing? Fuck off! Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Off All right, bye. <laughs> it must be a mood change or something. But, you know, it's like, that was steroids. And if you want to see if yeah. someone is on steroids, that's another way. Not only the, the, thin, uh, the thin skin, but the moods. You yeah. know, people, they change moods. They just, yeah. they're, they're different persons at different times. Crazy, absolutely crazy. Like, oh, what, it was what, a jungle. It was a jungle then. Yeah, it sounds like chaos. Like the the, the main thing that I, I I wanted to ask about it was like once once the trial happened and the company were found as well, Vince was found as not guilty. What what changes were made? Like, was was how how did things change backstage? Was everybody on edge a little bit? Did anybody feel like oh shit, they're they're well, trying the to first, find the persons that were concerned? They were on edge. The persons that needed, oh, yeah, it, yeah, or that they, <laughs> because a lot of the talent, I must tell you, like Ultimate Warrior, he was the worst worker in the world, but he looked fantastic when he shook the ropes yeah. with all his muscles and this. So he was counting on his muscles to make his living. So the ones that could not do that anymore because of the steroids being taken away from them, those were the guys that were worried because they didn't know how to work. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. the guys that knew how to work, you know, you had some smaller guys. I remember like a Tully Blanchard, a couple of guys that were small. You just IRS. There was a couple of guys that didn't, you look at them, they didn't need Jimmy Garvin, Ronnie Garvin. They were straight. And so they had talent. 
and they were working like that. But all the other guys that were overbilled, those are the guys that had, they were really, really uh, worried in the dressing room for sure. Yeah. Wow. But they found, but they found a way around it. They found a way around. I was there. I don't know what the way was, but they were still as big. <laughs> they were still the guys that needed to. They were still as big, and there were no more steroids, supposedly. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Like that. That's what. That's what I was thinking. Because like, the the trial came in, and then you would have assumed everything changed. But that's what I was thinking as you were talking. I thought to myself, well, those guys never got any smaller. They always stayed quite big. So. Something. You know, they start saying, a lot of the guys are starting saying, oh, now we're taking creatine. You look, creatine is something that you could sell in a gym. It's a stimulant, right, yeah. but, it's, but it's not, uh, it's not steroids. But uh, so, so, so that was the story. Was it, whether it was true or not, I don't know, because, you know, I wasn't on steroids. I got to tell yeah. you a funny story, too. I got to tell you something that nobody knows. It's, I, I like telling those stories. We're going to, my brother and I, Raymond. We're, uh, we've been in two years in the business now. We're two baby faces as a fa the Rougeau brothers. Not fabulous yet, but just the Rougeau brothers. And we're going down from L.A. to San Diego on the West Coast. And we're going down. And one night I look at Raymond and I say, you know, I, I'm 6'3". And my brother Raymond's 5'10". And, you know, and I'm saying to Raymond, I said, hey, Raymond, you know what? I'm look, you know, look at what's going on here. Look who's getting the push. Like, look who's always having the li the lights on them, the light, the spotlights. It's the guys that are big. So I said, why don't we try a little cycle of steroids? You know, I asked my brother Raymond, and <laughs> my brother Raymond says, no, no, we're not doing it. So I, I dropped the subject, and it never came about again in my career. Wow. Huh. Was but, that I thought my, but my height and my my knowledge of wrestling. With a body like, uh, I don't yeah. know, uh, uh, I could have yeah, been, yeah. I could have been, I could have been more than two days in the continental chest. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm guessing that, that looking back on it, you're glad you didn't do it. I'm sorry. I'm guessing like when when you look back on that now, are you glad that you didn't didn't take take the steroids and go down that path? You know what? If anybody wants to go and see my Facebook, I'm open publicly. Go on Jacques Rougeau. You'll see a picture of me and my girlfriend. And just about a month ago, three weeks ago, I posted a, I'm lying on the floor in a ring. I'm 61 years old and I do a nip up. You know how you land on your Yeah, feet? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm 61 years old. Go look at it. All the boys that are there, they're about 20 years old, 25 in the ring. I went to, for a little show to do a little thing with Santa Claus where I pulled his beard off as the Mountie. It was funny. Uh, really reminiscing my old career, I guess. I had a good time. A 10, a 10, 15 second segment. So anyway, when I was there during the day, I just got in the ring. And for the fun of it, I wanted to see, can I still do an hip-hop? I laid on my back. I put my hands in the back of my head. And I swung my feet and I'm back on my feet. And all the boys around there are going, Aiden Prince. A lot of the guys going, wow, <laughs> man, you know, it's landed on your feet. And I'm 61 years old. So, so that's where it paid off. I'm 32 and I can barely get up off the floor, <laughs> well, even slowly. But honestly. it's mostly technique. But to be honest with you, if I would have took steroids, I never could have done what I do today. I play tennis. I play, yeah. I do everything. I could go water ski right now if I want to. So, you know, it's, it's amazing. At the, and the guys that are steroid in those days, more than half of them are dead today that used to work with me. Yep. They're almost all dead. Yep. Heart attacks, heart attacks, heart attacks, heart attacks. Because when you put steroids in your body, you enhance the strength that you have, but your heart was not built for that. Yeah. 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 When you were when you were telling me telling me the story then, like all pretty much all of the names that you were saying, I was like, oh my God, dead, dead, dead. Oh, oh, he's alive. Dead. 
dead. Like it's 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 so sad. Like dead in there, dead before they hit fifty and sixty. A lot of those great great names. So thanks to my brother Raymond. Oh, thanks to Raymond. There we go, Raymond. We have we have Raymond. Raymond, if you're somehow listening to this, thank you so much <laughs> for, for your services for your your good deed. Um, yeah. <laughs> another so a name obviously that I'm I'm very attached to being British that you mentioned in there was the Bulldogs, Dynamite Kid, um, and the British Bulldog, uh, David Boy Smith. Now I'm not going to ask about the fight uh, because okay. you've you've talked about the fight so many times. Everybody asks yeah. about the fight. I like to try yeah. and ask. Slightly tell me what you, tell me something else. What you want to know about it? Though. Tell me what you want. So, so I think I think the main thing that I want to know is like, did you guys ever patch up your differences? No, no. Was that was no. that literally it? Just the, the fight happened? No, no. Well, if you remember that earlier in the podcast, I told you I'm a funny kind of guy. That remember yeah. the the emotions that I lived were horrible. I almost quit the business after he beat me up in the dressing room. You know, the first time. And before I made my comeback, he, I almost quit the business. That was my life. I never would have had the Mountie. I never would have had the Quebecers. I never would have. He almost caused my life. So it was the hatred in my heart and that was so huge and big. And, uh, and I remember a funny thing happened. I got to tell you this, though, because after I did my comeback, they, they quit two weeks after. They quit the business completely because uh, they, 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 uh, it, Vince had got us together and they were saying, hey, listen. You take a punch, he takes a punch. You take a knife, he takes a knife. He's going to take a gun, you're going to take a gun. Where is this going to stop? And, 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 and there were some things that were making him believe that I was going to make another comeback if ever, if ever he came back on me. So, so what did I want to say about that? Yeah, so I'm going one time about uh, five years after the event that happened. And I'm going to uh, London, uh, Manchester, England. I think that he was living around there, uh, near Manchester. And... Uh, and I'm going for a Comic-Con. And, 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 and when that happened, that thing, my comeback, everybody was all, br- hey, Jacques, I, I didn't want to hear about it. I didn't want no congratulations. I didn't, want, I didn't want no glory for that. That was the worst time of my life. I just wanted to forget it. I just wanted to put it behind me. So when I got in the, the Comic-Con in, in, in Manchester, we're in a big, big hotel, and, and there's Hacksaw Jim Duggan, there's uh, Crush, there's uh, Iron Sheik. And, and, and the Iron Sheik, you know, he fell in love with me after that thing with the Bulldogs, because I think he may have been intimidated, too, by them. So 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 he wow. when I did so when I did my comeback, he really he's one of the first guys that tell me, you know, he, he, he didn't say much, but I knew that he was happy that I defended myself, that I took care of myself. And, and when I got five years later, he looks at me, I come in the room and everybody's there, the fans and he starts going with his mustache. I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe it. You come to this this place, the Jabroni's place, and you come here. I can't believe it. And yet, and I'm saying, and I'm going like, please shut the fuck up. Like, please don't say that. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't want. And I'm and and I was in Paris the night before, and the night before I flew into Manchester. I'm gonna tell you a secret. I was scared shitless. Oh wow! Really? I, was, I was scared shitless that he was gonna send someone to. To do a comeback and to, to, to because he was known as the biggest bully of the business and he lost his reputation with me and i said that guy's never gonna forgive me he's gonna never never let it go he's gonna make a comeback one day and then and, and when he started screaming like that the sheik i was holy shit please i was hoping people would forget about what had happened you know like uh, the story and uh, and i was scared shitless and, and i swear to god when i left the hotel i went right to the to the airport you know and i was like and when I got on the plane and I was going back home, I was like, oh, 
man, I made it alive out of England, you know. And uh, yeah, but uh, because, like I say, I'm not a real fighter; I'm an entertainer, you know. So, so it was uh, it was heavy on my shoulders when I went back there. Uh, wow, that's it's, it's it's a mad story. Like I've I've read it so many times, and that's why I didn't want to ask you, like, oh, how did the fight start and all that kind of stuff? Because everybody knows that. But um, why? Here's, here's something I always wonder about it. Obviously, it was a massive, massive fight. Beat the shit out of each other. Threatened to put him in a wheelchair the next time you saw him and all that kind of stuff. Why why, why didn't you lose your job? Like, why, why didn't Vince... Is it just because Vince had that confidence in you and you had that good relationship? No, I don't think so. I think huh? he was more... I think... No, I don't think so. It may be a little bit of that. If you ask me now, honestly, I think because... Vince was afraid of the Bulldogs too. And I think oh, wow. that all the time, and I think that all the times that they were doing bad jokes to people, cutting their pants in the winter before they went to the airport or stuff like yeah. that, or things that were not nice, or shaving a guy's hair or losing his character, you know, and killing characters and the, there being the, the, the evil. And I think that Vince, when the boys would laugh about it, because there was always something about ego, all these egos together. And it was like, I think that Vince... At this, when the, the Pat Patterson or the boys would come up and they'd tell a story, and Vince was not too far, I think he would laugh almost like many of people that are afraid to face their bullies in life. You know, you could be sitting in a class at school and you have this guy who's always doing dirty jokes, you know, or being mean, and then he looks at you, and you have two choices. You could either look at him and laugh at his funny joke because then you know he's not going to touch you because you're on his side, or you could make a man out of yourself and not look at him and not acknowledge him. You know, but it, uh, so so I think that Vince was afraid of the bull, uh, of the bullying, and I think that 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 uh, that's my thought anyway. I may be wrong completely, but I think that when he was like half encouraging it and half saying, "Hey guys, that's not funny," you know, <laughs> I think it wasn't the way maybe to approach it because the Bulldogs were saying, "Oh, okay, he heard it, he laughed a little bit, he like, but he didn't fire us, yeah. so I think we could keep going." Keep going, and yeah. then it got worse and worse. And the worst it got, I think the worst Vince got scared of it. So when I stood up, the only guy who stood up to them, the only one. And I think Vince was like, he realized that he screwed up, that he shouldn't have let it go that far. And But he was happy at the same time that it happened when they gave their notice. Because now, and he knew that if ever he didn't do something about it, and I quit the business, the Rougeau family quit the business because of his ignorance, because he let it go, he would have had a really bad reputation. Yeah. You yeah. know? Maybe, am I making sense? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, to, to me, it sounds like he respected the fact that you stood up to them as well, because nobody else did. I, I think so. Maybe I think so. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's one of them stories that we'll always hear about for the rest of time, I'm pretty sure. Right? Who, and just for those who, who didn't know the real, real story, yeah, they could always go on Dark Side of the Ring because last yeah. year they, they, they showed an episode. I couldn't believe it. They called me to ask me what happened. I was I was 30 years later, and I told the story exactly how it was. So if you go see Dark Side of the Ring in the third yeah. season and the episode on Dynamite Kid, uh, no, it's not Dynamite. Yeah, is it Dynamite Kid? What's his real name? Um, oh, Tom Billinger, Tom Billinger, Billington, yeah, Billington, Tom Billington. So if you go see the third season, go see the story of what happened with us and you'll understand what I went through. And now that you know that I'm not a real fighter and that, you know, it was so hard and heavy for me to face mentally, you may understand the situation, how, how, how I feel today, you know, and, and how, but you know what the bottom line is, is I love those guys. 
When we came in the WWF, they were amazing. Me and Raymond were looking at them. We had a 20-minute match of Broadway and Madison Square Gardens with them. And it was amazing that we had that notoriety, not even to get beat by them. So, you know, to go in the ring with the guys that were so spectacular. And we looked at them. Every wrestler in the world looked at the Bulldogs like, wow. They're, as much as Hulk Hogan wasn't a single, they were as, as impressive as a tag team. Yeah. They they changed wrestling. They they were an era. They brought something. So I, I I used to love the Bulldogs. And the funny thing is, is a year and a half after I was the Mountie, and 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 here shows up one night that Davy Boy Smith in the dressing room. He came back as a single, and we had yeah. a feud as the with the Intercontinental title. But he was a champion, and I was trying to get his title. And the first night he came back in Philadelphia, he stepped in the dressing room that night, and I was so. Oh, my God. When I saw on the card, they told me the night before that the Bulldog is coming back. When they said it was Davy Boy, I was a little happier because I know he was the more stable one. He was the more quiet one of the two. He wasn't quite a fighter as much. He was not as loud as Dynamite Kid. So when I knew that, I was still scared shitless. So when I got into the room that night in Philadelphia, I was sitting down in the dressing room. And I was checking the door from the corner of my eye every minute to see, oh, boy, when is he coming in? Because we weren't on good terms now, I could tell you. Yeah. And, uh, and so when he came in, he came up in front of me and he looked at me and he says, can we speak in the, in the dressing room and uh, in, the, in the toilet? And I looked at him and I was so scared. And I looked at him and I said, sure. <laughs> but I didn't show it to him. But I was scared shitless. And when we got into the dressing room and we turned the corner, I kept the distance from him in case he wanted to sucker punch me. You know, so I kept the distance. And he turned around and he looked at me, and I could remember it as it was yesterday. He told me, he says, Jacques, he says, what you did to Dynamite, he says, you were right. And he says, I don't want to have any animosity with you. He says, I'd like to, for us to get along and to be friends. And I looked at him and my heart almost wow. melted. And I took his hand and, you know, and, and, and oh, my God, so much tension just came out of my body that night. You know, and then we had a great time in the business. We never reminisced about that. We never looked back at that. And it was a, and I loved working with Davy Boy. That's a really beautiful, like, touching story that that he recognised that. Especially, like, for for me, hearing that story, I had I I I don't know if you've ever told that story before. I had no idea about that. That's no, amazing. not really. As <laughs> not really. as a as a British wrestling fan, loving the Bulldog, um, looking up to the Bulldog as as a kid. Great. That's 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 beautiful to hear. That really is. Wow. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. This has been so good. I've learned so many cool stories. I, my my favorite one is still the Coco Beware story <laughs> that's fantastic that will stay with me for life now um right i want to i want to if you don't mind i've started doing this with with my guests recently just throwing some random names out there people okay. that you've worked with in the business okay you... just go ahead I know, I know where you're going shoot the names yeah i'm just gonna shoot some names if they were cool or not tell me if you've got any stories don't you worry share. feed me go ahead and feed me go ahead okay i would be remiss if i didn't start with hulk hogan the greatest man on earth in the business. He, he put me over in Montreal. I, he, you know, he did a job for me in Montreal. And, 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 and uh, he brought up my notoriety in my home and everywhere across the world, you know. And, and, and so I've, I'll be in debt to that man for the rest of my life. Awesome. Um, okay. Ric Flair? Ric Flair, the greatest wrestler, one of the greatest of all times. And I'll tell you something real fast, two seconds. We're in Atlanta, Georgia. I am 19 years old. I'm a punk. 
And then, you know, I, I, and I, I were in the Omni in Atlanta, actually doing the TV tapings at TBS, Turner Broadcast System. And, uh, and I'm, I have a dark match and a TV match with him. I'm going to make him look good for six minutes. You know, I have a match with him. So we get in the dressing room and I say, I'm so nervous. He's the world champion, you know, and I'm going like, holy shit, you know, I'm a young pup. And so I go to him. I said, Rick, is there something, you know, but the heels were calling the matches in those days, remember? So, so, I, so I told him, I said, uh, is there any, anything? What can we do? He said, don't worry, kid. He said, we'll get in the ring. We'll have fun. And he went in the ring and a six minute match for five minutes. He made me duck underneath, drop kick off the top. He made me shine. He was taking bumps. He made me look like a, a champion. And the, the TBS was the only TV station in the United States that was seen across the country. Every other state had their own little TV, but TBS, Turner Broadcast System, they were seen around the country. And he made me look like a king. And at the last minute, he beat me. And when I got back in the dressing room, I told him, I told him, I said, Mr. Flair, I said, like, like, what happened? <laughs> like, you know, and uh, why'd you do that? And he looked at me and he says, kid, don't worry. He says, you got a great dropkick, by the way. And he says, let me tell you something. He says, if I would have went in the ring and I would have swept the floor with you for six minutes, he says, and I would have beat you. He says, I would have beat nobody. Now, he says, you came in a little French Canadian with a lot of fire and this surprised me, surprised me, but I'm better than you. And then I beat you. So I beat somebody. <laughs> what a philosophy. Awesome. What a philosophy. Yeah. Man. And I went him at a Comic-Con about three months ago. I hadn't seen him since 30 years. Mm -hmm. I met him three months ago. And I came up to him and I told him the story. Do you remember it? And you know what? He looked at me and he didn't remember. And I was oh. beside him and Diesel, <laughs> Diesel was beside him. You know, Kevin Nash, mm -hmm. he was right beside him. And, 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 and Kevin Nash, he looked at us. I kept telling him the story. Like I just told you, no one was speaking. And then finally, Rick was like amazed because he was having his problems with the law there in the States or something. And he was going through a rough time. So when I, I made him feel so good about himself and then Kevin Nash looked at me and he looked at Rick and says, that's a great story, man. That's a great story. <laughs> and, but it was the truth. He changed the outlook of my philosophy in life. So now when I went into the ring after that, I understood that it was better to make a guy shine before you beat him. Yeah. So you beat so you beat somebody. Yeah. You just don't beat nobody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like put you over, but also still get the win himself. Yeah. So he's Clever. better. So he's Selfless. Better. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Awesome. Um, okay. Uh, Shawn Michaels. I love the guy. Shawn Michaels, we worked the Rockers against the Rougeau brothers. We had so much fun. You know, the uh, Shawn Michaels, we did marathon match. You know, like we did about 11 marathon match, which were an hour match. You know, the four of the one who gets the most fall in an hour. And we were rock and rolling in there. Raymond and me and Marty Janetti and Shawn Michaels. We were, do we were killing the planet. We did it all over the planet. And one day we were in London. We did the hour match, and because there's a six-hour time change, we flew to Philadelphia, and we had another hour match that night. And so we had two-hour matches in one day. And the other thing that I'll still, uh, I'm still so amazed when I, I think of this story, the last one-hour match we made, now everything was, uh, was, you know, tight now. We had done about 11 an-hour matches, so we knew the, the guideline and where we were going. It was so good, the match. And then we got it to Madison Square Garden. The, the, the biggest place. And then the Vince says, can, can I have one of those marathon matches? I heard they were great. So we, we screwed <laughs> Vince. We actually screwed Vince and he didn't know. We went into the match and before we went into the match, you know, every night they were winning six to five. You know, it was so close. Yeah. You know, the match, the, 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 
the falls. And then when we got in the gardens, there was 30 seconds left and it was like five to five. And this is going nuts because he was saying, holy shit. And finally, the time ran out. They run the bell. And then I went up and I took the microphone. I went on the microphone and I looked at Sean Michaels. It was all prepared between us. And I looked, except Vince didn't know. And I took the microphone. I look at Sean. You think you're going to get away with this? I want overtime. And we went another 11 <laughs> minutes. 11, we went an hour and 11 minutes. And then finally the Rockers beat us. And the Madison Square Garden's roof just blew off the top. 71-minute <laughs> match. Wow. That's like a Royal Rumble. <laughs> but you know, but, but, but Raymond was the greatest partner I've ever had because he, we were brought up in the same family. We, I knew where Raymond was in the ring without looking where he was. Yeah. You know, that's the, yeah, that's yeah. a brotherly that we had together. We really were good together. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, okay. Another name, Scott Steiner. Scott Steiner. Funny guys. Uh, when we took the titles from them, in Madison Square and Manhattan Center when Carl came in. The first night we came in, we took the titles off of them. They were really upset. They were really upset. And about three weeks later, we got into Winnipeg, Canada. And they, uh, you, I don't know if you remember a guy called Ludwig Borga. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was a Finland, a big Finland guy, a boxer, you know, ball-headed boxer, a little line there. And he was a tough guy, a real tough guy. And uh, we were in Winnipeg at the, and during the day we were at the gym and stuff like that. So we took off and then Ludwig arrived. And then the Steiners, when they left, they went and cut the tires on the car of Ludwig Borga that he rented in Winnipeg, you know, <laughs> and then they went to see Ludwig and they say, Hey, listen, I don't want to tell you who it is, but the guy, the guys, they were two and they had a black Lincoln. And so they described our car. Anyway, it came to them that they stooged that it was us. Because they didn't want us to become champions for too long. You know, they were, they worked, so they wanted to put heat on our ass. So when I got word at the hotel from one of the boys, Jacques, you better watch yourself tonight when you get at the arena because Ludwig Borga is going to kick your ass. I looked at him, I said, what? And I, but why? And then they told me, because you cut the tires of his car. What? And then, and then finally I put two and two together. So when I got to the building that night, you know, I, 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 before I got to the building, imagine this is after the bulldog fight. It's maybe a year after or two years later. So I'm, I'm, I, I don't want no trouble. I don't want no trouble ever again in my life, you know. And, and so I, I called the office at five o'clock and I sent a message to the office, to Vince. I said, Vince, I don't want you to do nothing because I don't want to look like a chicken either. I don't want to lose my reputation of having the office take care of me, you know. So, so I said, I just want you to be aware there's going to be a fight in the dressing room tonight. But I'm not instigating it. Someone else put it. And then I explained about the tires. I cut the tires. The Steiner did this and that. So, so when I got to the building, the, uh, what was their name? The Smoking Guns, Billy Gunn and Bart Gunn, they were sitting there. And Ludwig Borga was sitting right on my left when I opened the door. And when I came in, and I was scared shitless again. I was saying, holy <laughs> shit, this big guy is going to kick my ass tonight for no reason. And anyway, and he was just coming in the territory. So he's looking for friends. He was trying to make friends. And the Steiners were loud and they were uh, intimidating. So, 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 when, so, so when I walked in the dressing room, I played that role again. What shall we say? I played that role again. I opened the door. And Ludwig was sitting there in the smoking gun. Billy was playing, uh, the, the blonde one was Billy. Yeah, Billy. He was playing uh, cards with Ludwig or he's sitting there. And I looked, I opened the door. I saw him on the left and I looked at Ludwig. Ludwig looked up at the door and he saw me. 
And the word was out everywhere that there's gonna shit's gonna hit the fan, right? So then he looked up at me, and before he had a chance to talk, I said, "Can I talk to you outside for a minute?" Like I played the guy like he wants to kick his ass, you know? And then there's something like that, a tough guy. So he looked at me, and you wouldn't believe this. He looked up at me, and he says, uh, "Why?" <laughs> he says, "Why?" I loved it. You know what I said? I said, "Don't worry." I said, "We're not gonna fight. I just want to talk to you." I already planted a seed there. So he got up. He didn't have a choice. The boys were all looking, and they were all waiting for this all day. It was the rib of the day, I guess. So when he got up and he went out of the door, as soon as he came out of the door, he got in my face. And, I, I, and before he ever reached me, because I was afraid of a sucker punch, so when he, before he had a chance to reach me, I point my finger right at his, his face. I said, Ludwig, you want to kick my ass? Well, you do it. But I didn't cut your tires. But if you want to kick my ass, you do it now. Wow. And, he, and he looked at me and he, and he swore to God, it didn't take him two seconds. He says, no, no, Jacques. He says, I believe you. I believe you. He didn't want to fight either. He didn't want to fight. He's just coming into the territory. And he heard about the bulldog with me. He thought I was a big tough guy, which I wasn't. It was just the reputation I had. So he didn't want to fight. I didn't want to fight. But the Steiners instigated that whole thing. So, so if you ask me what I think about the Steiners, I don't know. Funny guys. Funny guys. <laughs> yeah, we'll just say funny guys. That'll do. Funny guys. <laughs> funny guys. Okay, awesome. Right, I'm going to ask one more. Um, we've already spoken a lot about Brett, so I wanted to ask about Owen Hart. Oh. Got to the ask man, Owen. The man, the man who, the man who, uh, who owns the name Hart. He had the biggest heart. That man, he was the nicest of all the boys. He was funny. He was in the dressing room. He would make you laugh without hurting anybody, without putting anybody down. I don't think there was a soul in wrestling that didn't admire that man. And, and for me, Owen Hart will always be the biggest heart of the Hart family. Owen Hart was, the, and the biggest heart probably of all the boys I've ever met. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah, I've, I've, I've spoken to a few guests about Owen, and they've all basically said the same thing. Like, he was everybody's best friend. Nobody had a bad word to say about him. He always made everybody laugh. Made everybody <laughs> laugh until they cried. Um, yeah, I spoke to. Uh, and, and, and Brett was also funny. I got to tell you something about Brett in case people don't know. Brett, Brett, even when I had the fight with the Bulldogs, he never butted in. We kept working night after night. He never. He was a gentleman about that. And and, and another thing I got to tell you about Brett, which I always admired, because Brett was a great drawer. You know, like draw pictures. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, he he was an artist, and he would come in every night. He'd come in early in the dressing room, and when there was something funny that happened the night before, let's say the agent uh, banged his head or something, or let's say one of the agents played golf with me and I beat him, and I was bragging about it. So he would come in the next night, and on the chalkboard, he would put me playing golf with the chief. Let's say Chief Jay Strongbow, where I'm, where Chief saying. Hey, you're cheating. You know, like in a little bubble there. Hey, you're cheating. But he would do some comedy, like comics with his art. He would make all the boys laugh, Brett. He was a really artist. And uh, and we always, the hearts were great. The hearts were always great. Yeah. That's a side of Brett that you never hear about. Nobody ever tells that story about, about him oh, yeah? being a, a funny and everybody guy. Knows. Everybody knows. From now on, when you do a podcast, <laughs> you ask about the, the, the chalkboard of Brett. No, I will. Have, They'll have a bunch of stories. <laughs> Every single guest that I have on from now on, do. I will ask do. that story. <laughs> awesome. You'll think of me. You'll think of me when that happens. I will. I absolutely will. 
Oh, brilliant. I love that. That's fantastic. Um, awesome. Right. So I want to um, I want to circle around and I want to talk about, about the current day because we we mentioned this at the start before we before we started the interview today about what, what you're up to these days. Obviously, like you said, you wrestled until 2018 and then you um, you retired for the third time, officially stepped away. But you've got some pretty big stuff going on this year with um, with, with Wrestling Academy. I'll let you tell everybody exactly what that project is coming to YouTube, hopefully coming to TV as well. Thank you for giving me the time. I appreciate that. And then it's the greatest. If you go and take this down, it's wrestling dash. There's a little line there. So it's wrestling dash academy.ca. And, and, and you guys could get into this too, because the, the way it's going to happen, it's going to be like, there'll be 42 contestants, male and female. And every week there's four that are going to be eliminated. But they're going to be eliminated with a panel of judges. There'll be three judges that they're going to vote for 40%. But then all the viewers on YouTube around the world, they'll be able to vote to see who they want to keep for 60% of the votes and who they want to let go. And it's not going to be judged by the winner or the loser of the match. It's going to be judged by the performance, the charisma on the mic. And that's where the judges will be judging on and the people should judge on and what a good character. And we got 10 provinces right now from, in case people don't know in Canada, there's 10 provinces. And I got the best of every province to participate in this thing. They're all coming to Montreal and it's going to be starting in the month of May. And, and, and it's going to be a, it's the first time a country like that, there's a concept like that where territories are all working together and, and everybody's coming together. And all these characters that you could go see on my website, wrestling-academy.ca, you'll see, you'll see the winners. First of all, they, there's four winners that are going to finish and they're going to win $5,000 each. And those guys are used to making $100 a night, you know, so they're going to make $5,000. But the biggest prize is they get to be seen by QT Marshall at the Nightmare Factory, one of the biggest schools in America. And he's going to be actually a judge on the last episode. So every Canadian wrestler who tries to go into the United States to wrestle, they can't because of immigration or this or that. But one day the Americans see a talent in Canada that they really like, they get the papers for them and they get them to come in. So so I'm going to be a door for them, just a door for them to be seen by QT Marshall and the Nightmare Factory. And, and that's the biggest prize because when I started, when I was young, I wanted to be famous when I was 17 years old and I wanted to make money. And I'm giving them both the opportunity to do that. And, and this is going to be so fun because it's going to be a national not a provincial, but a national contest. And it's going to be seen around the world on YouTube. I have my own YouTube channel now. So I'll be promoting that. I'll probably ask you to please help me when comes the yes. time in May. Just as, And people could go on my website and they could see QT Marshall talk. They could see Bret Hart talk. They could see the Million Dollar Man talk. Coco Beware is there and he's not shaking. But anyway, <laughs> and you can see all those talents that are wishing the Canadian wrestlers good luck. And it's amazing. And then if you press on all the talent, the part of the talent, you'll see the 42 talent, women and men, you just press on their picture and you'll see the talent. Everybody has a 30-second video of their best moments so far in their career. So it's an amazing project. I, I'm gonna, just going to tell you one thing. COVID killed a lot of people. Me, it gave me the chance to put this together. And, and, and to be honest with you, I was a very sad person in the last few years. Uh, I'm a guy, I'm a passionate guy. And I didn't have any more passion in my life. And when my three sons quit the business three years ago, I had my last match in the tag team. I asked my kids, would you please do me the same favor that my father did? He finished his match with his three sons, me, Raymond, and Armand. 30 years later, I finished my match with Jay Cedric and Emil, my three sons. So they gave that to me. And then my heart died because my kids... 
They quit the business. There was no more future for the Rougeau family. And now I thought wrestling was out of me completely. But now since I started this project, I'm like a baby. I'm like a kid again. I'm giving an opportunity to young people. I'm back into wrestling. I do things of the love of my life. So I'm a very happy man. Have you got any, have you, have your sons had children? Have you got any grandkids that might get into wrestling one day? One's on the way. There we go. Brilliant. <laughs> so the Rougeau family might make a comeback one day. You never know. Oh, who knows? But you know what? I'm, I'm just so happy. And, and you know, and my kids made me understand something very special in life because, you know, you grow up, the kids, kids grow up and they learn, but parents learn too. And, you know, and they showed me something, my kids, that dad, wrestling is your passion. It's not ours. Like yeah. we have a life, yeah. we have a life too. And I learned to respect that as hard as it was for me to let it go. I've accepted it now today. So now I'm getting all the other kids and I'm going back to wrestling again. My passion is alive. So don't forget wrestling-academy.ca. Have fun. Take a 20 minute ride there on that website and hope to see you in May or June, July for my 12 week contest. Absolutely. Sounds awesome. I can't wait. I would definitely be checking it out. And like you said, I'll be more than happy to share it out as well. I'll put some stuff on my YouTube, on my social so medias. Where um, Thank you. Is, is there other, other than the website for the, for the show, is there anywhere else that people can find you? Any other websites or you said you've got well, a YouTube actually, channel? You could go on jacquesrougeau.ca. If you go jacquesrougeau.ca, also you'll see a bunch of things. My stand-up comedy shows. I do my podcast that I did like you. I did some podcasts for two years with different people. I get a very interesting podcast, most of them in French, some in English. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it goes. And you, I also have my, my, my boutique. In my shirts, the Mountie shirts, and my mm -hmm. and the, the match where I had with Hulk Hogan, where I have so if you want to go buy some merchandise, you can go there too. JacquesRougeau.ca. But to be honest with you, my heart is with Wrestling-Academy.ca right now. Awesome. I'm going to put that in the description as well for the uh, for this episode, for this interview. So guys, check out the About section. Uh, follow all the links and they'll take you to everything that Jacques has been talking about. And that just leads me to say, Jacques, this has been an absolute pleasure honestly it really has man thank you can you so... can you make me happy for two minutes i will try <laughs> show the qt marshall uh, uh encouragement words for my wrestling academy because that's the oh, prize. Yeah. that's yeah. the prize the four winners are going to go there and i want you to show how credible this project is so there's two interviews of 30 seconds i want you to show bret hart mm -hmm. and qt marshall's can you put that up now and then i'll have a comment after yeah i'll get it um um, I will. I'll attach it so that it, it okay. plays at this point of the of the interview. Okay, but make sure you put it, QT Marshall, and I will. the Hitman Heart. Absolutely, Thank yeah. You so much, and this is one of my fun interviews I've done. You opened questions that I forgot about. You brought <laughs> me back where I forgot. You're a great guy, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. It really does. Um, guys, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And I enjoyed I it an absolute ton. So I, I don't think you could have enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, <laughs> like I said at the start, if you enjoyed this, please hit subscribe and please hit follow. Check me out on all the audio platforms. I've got uh, a mailing list for all my episodes to go out on. Patreon, all that kind of stuff. All the usual podcast stuff. Jacques, once again, thank you so much. You've been an absolute pleasure. I never thought I would get the the privilege of speaking to you so stop it stop it if there's one thing you got to remember <laughs> everybody out there there's one thing you must remember the mountie always gets his man always always <laughs> and i i did i did today as well i managed to get the mountie so that's <laughs> that's awesome for me guys thank you so much i look forward to catching you again next time and it's my resting podcast cheers hey this is brett the hitman heart and i want to wish all the best 
the Jock Rougeau and his Wrestling Academy 2022. I know they got a big event coming up, a big contest and a great opportunity for wrestlers across Canada, men and women, to train and maybe win $5,000 and ultimately get a chance to train with QT Marshall and the Nightmare Factory and maybe get a chance to maybe wrestle for AEW. But all I know is this is a great opportunity for every young wrestler. And I want to just thank Jock Russo for putting the idea together. I hope it works out really well and may the best wrestlers win. Hello, wrestlers across Canada. This is QT Marshall with AEW, and I am also the co-owner of the Nightmare Factory. And I just wanted to wish each and every single one of you good luck in the Wrestling Academy 2022. I'll be paying very close attention, following your journey, and I also look forward to being a guest judge. Good luck with everything. Jacques Rougeau is a great, great mind to be around. I can't wait for this. It's very exciting, and like I said, I will be following your journey and hope to see each and every one of you soon. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.